This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each show we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or a category from one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. So let's go to Monday. Uh, we've got Mohammed Ali, a physician from Bear, Delaware. Joanna Leroy, an attorney from Boston, Massachusetts. And Alex Damish, a data scientist from Chicago, Illinois, whose two-day cash winnings totals 26200 and I, they didn't ask this, but I wonder if Mohammed has. I'm. I don't wonder. I'm sure that he's had to put up with basically his whole oh, life. Oh, I bet. Being like people like, oh, Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Probably him being like, actually, it's a fairly common name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I assumed, I had. I had that thought process happen inside my own brain on my yep. day. <laughs> yeah. So we got the categories I won't be in today, TV people, 2019 National Geographic Travel Photo Contest, which was fun, mm-hmm. uh, military jargon and slang, followed by five clicks, and special ops, OP in quotation marks. That's right. Um, am I remembering right that this is the round that had a lot of corrections? Yes. 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 Yeah. This is the round that had a lot of corrections, um, which can be very jarring um, when you're competing. Mm -hmm. And they all get edited out in post because, like, why would you put that on your actual TV show that airs? Um, Right. But it's tough as a contestant to get through those because they often mean that taping stops for long stretches of you know several minutes at a time as the judges research things and make their decisions Mm -hmm. because they want to get it right Mm -hmm. they do so they take they take the time if if there's something that's questionable they take as much time as they need to uh research make sure that if they ruled you incorrect they know why uh what you said was truly incorrect and not just not what they were looking for we got a correction on the $800 clue in the National Geographic photo contest. Uh, the clue is vultures can soar gracefully for hours and are classified, along with hawks and eagles, as these, from the Latin for to seize. And the correct response they're looking for is raptors. But Muhammad responds, what are birds of prey? And the judges determined that that was an acceptable response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I guess... If I understand correctly, both uh, prey and predator come from a different Latin root, but that word also can mean to seize. I think predators was not specific enough, but it came after birds of prey. So birds of prey would have been a correct response. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mohammed was credited with a full correct response. Predator, I think, was not specific enough. Right even though it does, I think, also come from that same root, but it's but it doesn't fully fit the clue. So, but Alex was uh, credited back up to up to zero because she wouldn't have had the opportunity to give that response had Mohammed been ruled correct initially, right. as he should have been. And then in the $800 clue for special ops, a musical work not as serious as Rigoletto, 
Babes in Toyland, for example. Uh, and the response they were looking for was operetta, but Alex responded with light opera, which they also decided was correct. I remember when she said light opera and they ruled against her, I was I had a, an immediate reaction of, I don't know. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's okay. And I was vindicated. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, my, my initial response was, oh, no, that that's not correct because op isn't at the beginning but they didn't require op at the beginning necessarily um that wasn't that wasn't part of the sort of parameters of the category um and then there was a correction also um at the i won't be in today category at the 200 dollar level uh the clue was to her teachers in stockholm i'm starting a strike to protest climate change then sailing to new york try me on sat phone and uh joanna rang in but unfortunately pronou- mispronounced the name Greta Thunberg. She said Thurnberg. So added an R where there isn't an R. Um, and yep. Jeopardy is pretty flexible about pronunciation, but it has to be a pronunciation that you could reasonably get to from seeing the word written if you don't know how it's yeah. customarily pronounced. Um, so adding a yeah. sound is a problem. Yeah, particularly like adding consonant sounds yeah. are pretty clear. Uh, so those are that was kind of like the big story of this. Um, Muhammad finds the daily double at the eight hundred dollar level in I won't be in today, and it is in nineteen thirteen from this junior capitalist working from home in my new mansion at one hundred and two feet, the tallest house yet built in New York City. Uh, and he guesses who is Gracie, but it was John D. Rockefeller Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, Gracie's not a bad guess. I feel like we say that all the time. Not a bad guess. Uh, it's not a bad guess. Gracie Mansion <laughs> is uh, famously sure. the mansion of the New York City mayor. Um, so if you're uh, if you're taking a guess, I think that's a well very reasonable one. Yeah. And you know what? When they give a bad guess, we'll say it. <laughs> we'll just put them on blast. No, we won't. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so we get to the end of the, the Jeopardy round. Uh, Alex and Joanna are tied at 4,800, and Muhammad is at 1,800. Uh, that takes us to double Jeopardy. And I think partly because of all of those corrections, um, we didn't cover a lot of the double Jeopardy board. We had, I think, six clues unrevealed. Um, but the categories were Lafayette, It Is There, Pop Quiz, Literary Works of the 1820s, what a disaster! Linguistics and the electoral collage. We had a triple stumper about Missy Elliott. We did have a triple stumper about Missy Elliott. Real um, name Melissa with albums like Super Duper Fly. She's the first female hip hop artist in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Um, but I think maybe everybody was reeling a, a little bit from uh, from that single Jeopardy round. I think it was uh, any recovery they were able to manage is to their credit. Yeah. Because they, pro- they did have to stand around a lot, I'm sure, and then have changes of score, which it throws off your mindset. Yep. You're, you're looking at it and you're playing the game with a certain number in mind and then it changes. And so we didn't, yeah, we left uh, six, six clues on the board. They were the lower dollar amounts, so that worked in their favor to at least go for the higher dollar amounts. We had um, two daily doubles in a row. Always fun. Uh, at clues 18 and 19. Uh, the first one was in literary works of the 1820s. Alex hit it and uh, got the clue. Jane Webb Loudon wrote the first novel about one of these creatures, including the line, weak, feeble worm, exclaimed Cheops. And uh, she responded, what is a sphinx? Um, but the correct response was mummy. 
I also thought Sphinx. For some reason, Cheops makes me think of the Sphinx. Apparently, he was a, a pharaoh, also oh. known as Khufu. Okay. All right. So she lost 4,000 and then immediately hit the final daily double, which was at the $1,200 level in the electoral collage. Clue, this electoral change didn't come to Switzerland until 1971. 51 years after it came to the United States. She wagered 2,800 and correctly responded, um, what is female suffrage? So that brought her back into it. Uh, she took a big, big hit in that first daily double, but got back into the game there. And they made it through a few more questions before the end of the end of the round signaled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're going into final. Uh, Alex is in third place with 5,600. Joanna has 8,400, and Mohammed is in first at 9,800. Right, and they get the category historic lists, and the clue, why does not the Pope build the Basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers is one of these. And I, I'm, this must have been really tough for you. <laughs> yes, uh, this, is, um, this is obviously uh, Martin Luther's 95 Theses, and... Uh, they did not require the number 95. Uh, this was obvious to me, but I tend to freeze up on numbers in high pressure situations. And so I very much sympathized with, I think Mohammed and Alex both left the number out. I think that Alex yeah. probably, she, she wrote down, what are Luther's theses? And then Mohammed went with, what is Luther's list of comp? And we think he was heading for complaints, but he didn't get it all the way written down. The way Alex responded, it sounded as if he was ruled incorrect because he didn't complete the response. So I'm curious if they would have taken what is Luther's list of complaints. I guess we'll never know. Yeah, if it has ever been referred to that way in like a, you know, in a historical document, then they would, is my understanding. Yeah. Whether or not that's the the quote unquote normal name for things, uh, if there's a if there's an academic source that they can find, then they would they would accept it. But yeah. Alex is the only one that gets it uh, correct, and that means she ends up winning with seven thousand three hundred forty nine dollars. Mm-hmm. And that takes us into Tuesday. So on Tuesday we have Theodore Conrad, an urban planner from San Francisco, California. Stephanie Sumulong, a middle school social studies teacher from Fort Collins, Colorado. Ooh, is that near you? Uh, Fort Collins is about an hour and a half north. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, it's where Colorado State University is. It's beautiful. Fort Collins is awesome. And we have Alex Damish, a data scientist from Chicago, Illinois, whose three-day cash winnings total $33,549. So in Single Jeopardy, we have the categories What's for Breakfast, Classic Novels, Motorcycle Makers, Words and Their Meanings, Broadway Names, and State of the Lotto Scratcher. I thought the, the name of the category Words and Their Meanings uh, is <laughs> a, a bizarrely long-winded way of just saying, like, words. Words, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's just, na- like, what is this word? Like, <laughs> that's all that's all it is um, yeah. so i i noticed throughout this uh throughout this round i'm not sure um theodore seemed he, he seemed unsure 
mm. of himself and i don't yeah. know i don't know if that's how just how he normally is or if something threw him off in that particular instance or if he was just not comfortable on stage mm-hmm. or something like that but uh he did not uh he he had zero dollars going into the first commercial break and he did not ring in correctly on on a number of on, on most of the questions obviously in this round except for the motorcycle makers category which crushed he, through which that crushed. category yeah 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 that was like that was his wheelhouse so to speak yeah which i love about jeopardy um you know that like really just anything is fair game anything and so it's not enough to know history and geography you have to really know a little bit about everything yeah yeah enough to at least guess but i don't think he was guessing he seemed pretty confident in all those we get the first Daily Devil in the classic novels category at the $600 level. Theodore finds it, and he only wagers 400 And I believe he had $800 at the time. I wonder the last time someone who had less than the like uh, maximum bet for the round did not bet the maximum bet. Yeah, but I think, I mean, I think he knew it wasn't his category, you know? Sure. So he gets a clue... Um... Esther Greenwood is a college student and an aspiring poet in the 1950s who suffers a mental breakdown in this autobiographical novel. Yeah, and he offers no response, uh, but it is The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, Um, which I did know. Yes. Look at me with women authors. Good for you. You knew something about a lady author. Yes, tell me how good I am as a man for knowing one thing about women. I know at least one thing about male authors, I will tell you that much. Um, <laughs> someday I would like to see a Jeopardy category that is male authors. <laughs> like, right, like, yeah. Historical men. <laughs> <laughs> Be really tongue-in-cheek about it. Yeah. 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 But by the end of the Jeopardy round, you know, helped by that uh, motorcycle category theodore is tied with alex at 3000 yep could i gripe for a second about clue number sure. 29 which is it in the what's for breakfast category the 800 dollars clue i mean i guess i guess i'm glad that stephanie got the points but uh the, the clue was the original mcdonald's egg mcmuffin is made with this type of meat uh theodore rang in with sausage which is incorrect um stephanie rang in with bacon and got a be more specific and modified to canadian bacon and i guess like Canadian bacon is such a different thing from what we mean in America by bacon that like mm-hmm. it feels like like Canadian bacon sausage and bacon 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 uh, yeah feel like like three entirely different things and I'm not sure that bacon is um you know like closer than sausage to the correct answer you know right. what I mean like yeah I get what you're saying so in, in a way it like, felt a little a little unfair that Theodore got a no and Stephanie got to be more specific and got to change it to what is effectively an entirely different thing. <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah, um, I get that. So, you know, <laughs> uh, good for her. But I was like, you know, like, it has the word bacon in it, but it's like, if you rang in with duck and the answer was rubber duck or duck sauce, you know, like... The fact yeah. that there's a common word doesn't necessarily mean that it's like a subset. Anyway, that's my gripe. Anyway, mo- <laughs> moving on. Double Jeopardy. Uh, we get the categories Not So Easy Kids TV, Doppelhangers, When I Was Secretary of State, Animal Maladies, All About Eve, and In Extremis, in which 
each correct response is made up of letters from the word extremist. That was uh, way harder than you would think. I thought. I don't know. It it might be. I, I, I ran it, but oh, nice job. Thanks. There was also a when I was on. There was a. I don't remember which game it was or who I was against, um, but we also had a category in ovation, which mm-hmm. was the same exact thing, except you're pulling letters from the word ovation. I think I'm just not good at these categories, I'm realizing. Like, I'm good at... Maybe. Um, yeah, I'm good at anagrams where you use all of the letters, but sure. taking taking a set of letters and, it can, and your response can be any number of letters, but they have to all be from that word. I think that my brain just doesn't do well with those. Yeah, it's a different kind of process, yeah. for sure. I did well in that category. Well, congrats. I did um, poorly. Anyway, they did pretty well in the Not So Easy Kids TV. I was not surprised that Alex was the one to get My Little Pony and Paw Patrol. Those are mm. more more recent. Yeah. Although Stephanie is a middle school teacher, so mm-hmm. like she, she deals with kids. Although I don't know that middle schoolers watch those shows, particularly Paw Patrol. But she did. She did get uh, Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, mm-hmm. and or Sid, the Science Kid. They also did very poorly in in Extremists. Uh, yes. The only one they got was the two thousand dollar clue, um, mm-hmm. which good for Stephanie getting that one. Yep, I got the um, sixteen hundred dollar clue. Uh, this Bishop Topper, which is a mm-hmm. miter. That's those pointy hat things. Yep, pointy hat things. Yeah. I think I think that's Latin for pointy hat thing. Yeah. Daily Double 2 was in the All About Eve category at the $1,600 level. Alex found it the clue, and wagered $3,000. Uh, the clue was, in genetics, this Eve, named for part of maternal DNA, refers to the last common female ancestor of all modern humans. Uh, and her response was, uh, who is mitochondrial Eve, which is correct. Mm-hmm. I don't remember where I heard that first, but that's another thing that's just stuck in my brain. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, a few clues later, Stephanie reveals the third Daily Double at the $800 level in When I Was Secretary of State. And it says, I opposed slavery and got us what would be an entire state, though no one appreciated at the time. Hurtful. Uh, and she seemed to have a little bit of trouble parsing it out and figuring it out, but then she she had like a, a very clear moment of realization yes. and correctly identified who is Seward. No, I'm terrible at cabinet members. This is one of my uh, one of my weaknesses that I need to address. Seward's folly was the purchase of Alaska. Oh, okay. Yeah, it seems like nobody did appreciate it, if that's what they call it. Yeah. I think there's there's been some griping around the internet, a sense that this was a very like these these uh, I think these last couple of games were pretty hard. Yeah, there's been there's been some speculation that I've seen around uh, Twitter and Reddit. Um, that maybe there's uh, they've got some uh, tournament of champions clues left in the bank that are sort of working their way through the system, um, <laughs> right? <yeah. laughs> being harder than average and throwing everybody off their game, right? Uh, which sort of fits with this final Jeopardy clue. Uh, they got the category literary New York City, mm-hmm. and the clue an insider described the scene there. Just loudmouths showing off, saving their gags for days, waiting to spring them. Literature's my wheelhouse. I lived in New York City for 10 years, and I didn't know this one. So maybe you did? I don't know. I did not get there. Um, I didn't know where to begin. 
And I, when Alex uh, revealed her response of what is a Gatsby party, like in my mind, that was kind of where I was going. I was thinking of New York City in literature. Yeah. But that is incorrect. Theodore's guess of essentially going for what is the Apollo theater uh, was also incorrect. And Stephanie guessed what is Saturday Night Live, which at first I thought, oh, that might be it. But it's not the literary response. enough, right? Like, yeah, I mean, she, right? she spotted like loud mouths and gags and like that that sure sounds like Saturday Night Live, but it's it's not literary in New York City. But the correct response is the Algonquin Round Table. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which when it was revealed, I was, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But I was not going to get there. Neither was I. Uh, so uh stephanie had gone in with a pretty good lead uh 15,000 to alex's 8,800 and theodore's 5,400 and so she dropped down to 12,399 um but was able to stay ahead of both both of them so she is our returning champion on wednesday so on wednesday we have jennifer quayle a wine tasting consultant from dewajak michigan Davida Curtis, a retired court clerk from Salem, Oregon, and Stephanie Sumalong, a middle school social studies teacher from Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, returning with one-day cash winnings of $12,399. Yeah, and as a teacher from Colorado, I had to I had to assume that she was going to go the distance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just had to. Yep. All right, so you're pulling for Stephanie in this game, uh, and we'll see how that works out for you. I mean, we know how it works out. We're at the yeah, end of the week. <laughs> yeah, we are. Um, so Stephanie's a strong contestant who comes up against quite a challenger. Yes. Uh, so they get the single Jeopardy categories. You can take that to the bank. Trios in the National Toy Hall of Fame. The song by parenthetical title. Bengal and Tiger Talk. Yeah, I thought the song by Parenthetical Title was very fun, but also harder than you would think. Mm. Right? Because they only give you the parenthetical and you got to figure out the rest of it. So the top three were, the top three clues were, were like, I thought pretty gettable. Um, yeah. Uh, the $800 clue, though, meatloaf, quote, but I won't do that quote but do start the title with a contraction so it, they very clearly tell you that the title starts with a contraction jennifer guesses what is i'll do anything for love which is incorrect and then stephanie says i would do anything for love which goes against the clue saying have a contraction right um, if she had just contracted i would to i'd yeah she would have had it yeah and then the the one thousand dollar clue was a triple stumper um, yes you may know that in my house we are Clemson Tiger fans, mm-hmm. um, and so you would think that we would have liked the four hundred dollar clue in Tiger Talk. I was watching it by myself. I texted my husband. Um, <laughs> uh, I did not get it. Neither did he, and he went to every Clemson home game throughout his childhood. He he said. I literally did not know that song has had words. It is just a thing that the band plays. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, who knows the words to their fight song? Yeah, uh, there are there are songs like no and like chants and things like they're like. Please trust me. There are things that happen in the stands that I 
did not know I was signing up for when we got married. Um, <laughs> but nobody knows the words to that fight song. Oh, no. No, um, no one does anywhere. And, like, how many people know that an alma mater is also a song? Uh, well, well, I did because I sang yeah. it. Yeah. College but that's part, that's but, what i'm saying yeah. like if you sing for your college you probably sing the alma mater if you play in the marching band you probably play the alma mater but aside from that like yeah no one knows the words to fight songs and that's okay the alma mater is the slow song that the band plays when everyone's not paying attention so there we go uh, yeah i don't know if i read back the clue uh it is in clemson's fight song this phrase follows where's that tiger um, and the correct response is hold that tiger. And I don't know how anyone would know that. Maybe somebody can tell me. My guess was, oh, God, where's the tiger? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think maybe maybe if they had asked for the name of the university, I don't know. But it did not strike me as a, as a $400 clue. Right. Yeah. Anyway. All right, true. enough griping from me. <laughs> uh we get the first daily double at the $800 level in Bengal, and it is this capital of the state of West Bengal is spelled with two Ks. It used to be spelled with two Cs. And the correct response, uh, it actually does not mean Lion City, even though that is what we both guessed yep. in our uh, <laughs> Tournament of Champions quiz. Uh, it is Kolkata. Yes. Uh, so Jennifer, Jennifer gets that uh, and wins two thousand uh, dollars, adding to her lead. Yes, adding to her lead that becomes rather significant uh, oh, even yeah. by the end of the Jeopardy round. She is yeah. up to ninety four hundred against Stephanie's twenty four hundred and Davida's twenty four hundred. Yep. So that takes us to double Jeopardy. So we get the categories. Let's science the heck out of this which I love the name. <laughs> yeah, it's a good category name. Uh, Oscar, one of a kinds, historic names, literary passings, modern activism, and ends with two vowels. Mm, modern activism falls squarely into my Jeopardy so woke theory. You're right. Um, You're yeah. so right. I, it's confirmation bias. I, I, I just highlight it for us when it comes up, but uh, yeah. A strong showing from all the players in this round, but Jennifer, as Alex... I thought kind of rudely pointed out at the end, D Jennifer played a really good game, played an incredibly impressive, which she did. But he also, I don't know, it always bugs me when he like points that out because the other two are, they're right there. Yeah. I mean, come on. We all yeah. see it. Yeah. You don't, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so the first daily double uh, we find in the historic names category at the $1,600 level, and it's in 1609 he published New Astronomy, containing his first two laws of planetary motion. And Jennifer correctly identifies Kepler, Johann Kepler, for $3,000. I, uh, very confidently said, who is Newton? And then she said, who is Kepler? And I'm like, that is exactly who I meant. Um, yes. So, <laughs> if you let so, me just run it oops. back real fast. <laughs> uh, and, um, she also finds daily double number three uh, at clue number seven in the literary passings category at the $800 level. She gets the clue, this nemesis perishes when he plunges off Switzerland's Reichenbach Falls with the hero, which we talked about a few weeks ago. We uh, did indeed. Yeah, uh, it was in the quiz. Uh, and the correct response, which she gets is, who is Professor Moriarty? Yes, and that is Sherlock Holmes. The hero in the clue. 
Uh, and yeah, so Jennifer through those daily doubles adds seven thousand to her score, and she really does a just a great job. <laughs> she she's she's very fast on the buzzer. She is, yeah. And she also knows plenty of things. Uh, that brings us into final Jeopardy with a lock game. Stephanie's at forty four hundred, Davida's at six thousand, and Jennifer's at thirty five thousand two hundred. So not a not a close one. Yeah, I know. Uh, so we get the category opera title names, uh, which I know you're always excited to see. Mmm, lots yeah. of opera. Always yeah. lots of opera. I feel like more opera than normal, though, recently. There's been, there's been a spike, I think, in opera and ballet recently. Yeah. So the clue is, before being consumed in flames, he flirts with a bride on her wedding day, and a list of his amorous conquests is sung. Uh, Stephanie responds, who is Icarus, which is incorrect. Davida responds, who is the Barber of Seville? Uh, also incorrect. Jennifer has wagered 10,000 and, and uh, responds, who is Don Giovanni? Which is the correct response. Uh, yep. It is a... The, the story in most other settings is called Don Juan. Yes, I did not realize until I was reading up about this afterwards that it was uh, like a translation or whatever of Don, yeah. Don Juan. It's Don Giovanni, and it does end with him being dragged to hell. Yes. In flames, yes. Um, and a little, uh, little side, little little tidbit about this. This is one of uh, Mozart's three love operas. Um, there's Don Giovanni, uh, Così fan tutte, and The Marriage of Figaro, and each of them are meant to kind of signify different kinds of love. So Don Giovanni is profane love, which is essentially lust. Um, the Marriage of Figaro is. Uh, pure love or or like sort of like i don't want to say innocent love but but the real love between two people uh and then cosi fantute is sort of like fickle love um because that that's the less known one basically the story is there are two two couples uh engaged to each other and the two men for some reason get talked into tr- like testing the women testing their their fidelity and all of that so they uh, disguise themselves, pretend to be different people, and try to seduce their own fiancés. That's, uh... It's, it's, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Real classy move. Yeah, right? It's, <laughs> yep. Um, but anyway, that's, those are the Mozart love operas. And one, right. one, more, one more quick little thing about Don Giovanni. Uh, the entire opera, the trombone players get to sit there and do nothing until that very last scene when he's being dragged down. Oh, uh, nice. Because... Uh, apparently, back in the day, trombones very clearly signified death. Mm. So, like, the listener of the time would hear a trombone playing and they'd be like, oh, yep, that means he's dying. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, so uh, Jennifer very handily uh, takes herself into Thursday. So we get Kelly Gerhold, an adjunct history teacher from Bakersfield, California. Chris Blazone, an operations control specialist from Chicago, Illinois, another Chicago person. Mm. And Jennifer Quayle, a wine tasting consultant from Dowajak, Michigan, whose one day cash winnings total $45,200. It's a lot. I'm sure you have to work very hard and know a lot of stuff to get there, and I'm not, you know, trying to diminish any of that. But being a wine tasting consultant sounds like the best job. That sounds like a really good job. Yeah. 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 I know I'm way oversimplifying it, but from the outside looking in. Yeah. yeah. So in the single Jeopardy round, 
Uh, we get literary locales, tanks a lot, archaeology, the J effect, uh, which is sort of a catchphrase that Jeopardy's social media has been using uh, with reference to uh, the effect that Jeopardy has on people's lives. But in this case, it is just clues where the correct response starts with J. Cheese for the mouse hmm. and actors and roles. I thought cheese for the mouse was fun, possibly because I'm a little bit too into cheese. <laughs> Can you be too into cheese? I don't, I, maybe you can't. You know what? I, I retract my statement. Um, yeah. Own it. Own yeah. it, Emily. I am just into cheese. They were kind of hard, though. <laughs> For me, at least. Uh, they, uh, each one referenced a mouse character for mm-hmm. whatever reason. They just had decided that if this was a mouse category, like that would be their gimmick. The only one I had a little bit of a hard time with was at the $1,000 level. Uh, Speedy Gonzalez, your selection is this crumbly kind, the Parmesan of Mexico. Uh, Chris guessed Chihuahua. Jennifer guessed Manchego, uh, which is from Spain. Spanish, yeah. Yeah. Um, the correct response was Cotija. And they, yeah, no one got it. Yeah. I certainly did not. They had a little bit of a hard time getting to uh, the $800 clue also. Uh, which was Mr. Jingles, a little grass a young type of this five-letter Dutch cheese. Jennifer guessed Edam, which is a very common Dutch cheese that comes up all the time in crosswords, um, Mm -hmm. but it's four letters. And Chris guessed what is Munster, which I think is German, um, and also not five letters. Um, uh, But Kelly got Gouda, and Alex Mm -hmm. said Gouda for you, which of course he did. (laughs) (laughs) what a dad joke who can resist a cheese pun not me i you know i don't want to meet that person yeah so we get the daily double at the 800 dollars level in archaeology uh and it is the 1866 discovery and translation of the decree of canopus confirmed champollion's work translating this other artifact uh, and Jennifer bets a thousand, and she correctly identifies what is the Rosetta Stone. And with that daily double, and then the subsequent thousand-dollar clue below it, uh, which is Hadar in Ethiopia, is the site where the 3.2 million-year-old remains of an early hominid, given this female name, were found. Uh, she identi- identifies Lucy, and she ran the category, but there was no recognition. Yeah, J Archive notes no applause or acknowledgement yeah. for Jennifer running the category. Yeah. Uh, That's a bummer. Because yeah. she did it straight down, too. It yeah, wasn't she even did. like. Top to bottom. Yeah, it wasn't like she was jumping around or going reverse or anything like that. Yeah. That just. That, yeah, weird. Yep. Nobody knew Kellyanne Conway. Uh, she, uh, she was in the $800 level at Tanks a Lot. Uh, the clue was now a counselor and close advisor to the president. She once ran Vox Futuri, known as not a think tank, but a do tank. She, I guess. Suffers the fate of Michael Avenatti, I guess. <laughs> yes. It's like we can't, we can't, well, like, yes, we do trivia, but we can't be bothered to keep track of, you know, who's in the White House at the, like, advising the president at the moment. Too much of a revolving door. She's been around for a while, though. She's been... Anyway, uh, so we get to the end of the Jeopardy round, and Kelly has the lead at 5,400. Ooh. 
right. Yeah, Jennifer so is she does. just a little bit behind at 4,800, and Chris uh, is, is at 600. He didn't wasn't able to get in get in on much of those uh, yeah. responses. Uh, in the double Jeopardy round, we get the categories Grand Old Flags, four-letter words, B Siege, B in quotation marks, Patriot Games, The World According to Jeff Goldblum, another video category, and Complete the Constitutional Phrase. And I will say right now, just to throw it all out there, we did have a request to do a deep dive on Jeff Goldblum, but I did not do it, and I'll talk about that later. That request was from my mom. Oh, was it really? Yes, and sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The Patriot Games category was uh, fun in that it was a football category. Mm -hmm. About about New England Patriots. Patriots, yes. And uh, (laughs) there were uh, three triple stumpers in that category, which, you know, I think Jeopardy! contestants have... uh, shown a particular consistency with football clues yep in the 800 cat uh level on that category they accidentally moved to chicago <laughs> so it's the 800 clue yeah uh on october 11th 1963 the red sox weren't playing it was the patriots first game of six seasons in this home field kelly guess what is wrigley field home of the cubs uh chris asked what or er, responded what is comiskey park which good on you for knowing comiskey but both that's the home of the White Sox and was for a long time. Um, but the correct response is Fenway. Sort of wonder if Chris learned it as a, you know, if it's not Wrigley, then it's Comiskey, Chicago sports clue, and, and went for it automatically. So Fenway was the correct response there. <laughs> yeah. It happens. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, of course. We get the second daily double in the Grand Old Flags category at the $1,600 level. It's... Around since 1817, Chile's flag is known as La Estrella Solitaria, this name familiar from another flag, which if you, if you know Spanish, you can just translate it straight up. If you don't, it's probably pretty hard to get there unless you can kind of look at the, the cognate of solitary and, and work mm-hmm. your way around to there. Yeah. Um, but Jennifer correctly identifies the Lone Star. Oh, she was already in a bit of a lead at that point, um, so that increases her lead. And not long after that, she hits daily double number three. It is in the $1,600 level in the B siege category. Um, the clue is, during this 1900 rebellion, a siege of the international quarter of Peking was broken with the timely help of the U.S. Marines. Uh, and she correctly responds, what is the Boxer Rebellion? Wagering 2500 not long after that, she like she went silent for a while, and Kelly and Chris went got a chance to do a little bit of catching up. Kelly actually got ahead of her for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But Jennifer does manage to get a lead going into Final Jeopardy. She's at 16,100. Kelly is at 13,800, and Chris is at 5,800. Uh, so not, not nearly the massive lockout that she had the day before. So we get to Final Jeopardy, and the category is Holiday Songs, and the clue is this song had its beginnings as a book handed out to children at Christmas at Montgomery Ward. And I struggled with this one, and then pretty confidently, for whatever reason, wrote down what is Santa Claus is coming to town. So I had it wrong. I Uh, didn't didn't even really, like, 
hazard a, an actual guess because I was like, anything I say is as good as anything else. Mm. So, uh, Chris from third place uh, got it right with what is Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, uh, wagered 5701. Kelly guessed what is the first Noel and lost 10,000. And Jennifer responded, what is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and got it right, wagering 13500 for the win. Yeah, so she does get a big payday uh, yeah. with that correct response. It takes us to Friday. So we have Katie Kunamnani, a physician from Holmdel, New Jersey, Randy Hassel Jr., a software engineer from Virginia Beach, Virginia, and Jennifer Quayle, a wine-tasting consultant from Dewajak, Michigan, whose two-day cash winnings total $74,800. Yeah. That's so much. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, so we get the categories mugshots, retired numbers in sports, clothing, lakes and rivers, according to Black's Law Dictionary, and remember the LMO. Each correct response will contain those three letters in that order. However, not necessarily next to each other. Mm-hmm. They just will have an L, then later they will have an M, then later they will have an O. Overall, uh, I mean, they, they all played well in the first in the first round. I don't know that there were any triple stumpers in the Jeopardy round, which is good, good to see. It's nice to see the, the questions get answered. Mm-hmm. The mugshots category was fun because they show a picture of the person that they're talking about and then yeah. basically ask you to identify them, which it's more straightforward uh, than some of the other picture clues we can get but also the clue doesn't necessarily give you the answer Mm -hmm. you know like some of the map categories so that was fun i enjoyed that it was it was interesting to see some of those some of those faces in the remember the lmo category uh the 400 dollars clue of glowing like some watch dials reminded me of one of my favorite nonfiction books that i read last year the radium girls um so Hmm. super interesting um, about uh, young women who um, painted watch dials with radium um, oh. in like the first half of the 20th century and you know all got like terrible cancer sure uh, because they were um, they were taught to bring their brushes to a fine point by um, sort of rolling them between their lips mm. yeah. Yeah, so they were they were uh, ingesting radium. Radioactive material. Regularly, yes. Oh. Yeah, it, it was very bad. Uh, really interesting history. So, you know, if, yeah. you're looking, if you're looking for an interesting nonfiction read, that was a good one. Nice. Excruciating, though. Oh, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. We get the Daily Double at clue number 29 in the retired numbers in sports category. Katie finds it and wagers 3,000. The clue is the Seattle Seahawks retired this number to honor the extra player, the fans. Um, She guesses what is one, but it's 12. It's uh, the 12th man, I guess, is how Seattle Seahawks fans refer to themselves. Yeah, I mean, the 12th man is a general term for any crowd of a football team because there are Mm -hmm. 11 players are on the field for each team. And so the twelfth man is is the idea of, of how the how the crowd can affect play and how they can you know whether it's just like providing morale and support for the team or like you know a lot of a lot of teams and the the Seahawks fans take this upon themselves 
try yeah. to sometimes be so loud and obnoxious that mm. the opposing team can't hear and can't communicate yeah. and that kind of thing. That's that's where that comes from. Yeah. I was surprised to find myself getting at least a couple in the retired sports, numbers in sports category, because that is not my forte. Um, but we had a question in Learning League recently about uh, NHL number 99. That's right. uh, the great one. So, yes, the great one. So I knew... Um, I knew the response to every team in the NHL has retired number 99 in honor of this great one, uh, Wayne Gretzky. And uh, one of my son's favorite nonfiction books on his shelf is relevant to the $800 clue. To honor Jackie Robinson in 2014, UCLA retired this number in every sport. Uh, That is what is 42. Um, There's a series of biographies by the author Brad Meltzer, um, including the the title i am jackie robinson so that's a favorite in our house yeah nice yeah he's written Ooh. a lot of a lot of good ones so more yep. books to uh, check out for for when yours your kids are a little older i think but uh but they're pretty they, yeah yeah like when they can actually <laughs> yeah. read but they're, yeah. they're pretty friendly to like <laughs> early elementary yeah i'll check that out um the thousand dollar clue though I felt like would have been appropriately difficult at a thousand dollars had they not shown the picture. Oh, Maybe it's because like yeah. you know my my mom's from Chicago. We're 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 basically a Chicago family, so the coach. I'm always gonna know the yeah. coach. They showed the picture of Mike Ditka. I was like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So we get to uh, uh, that we get to the the double jeopardy round. Katie has just missed the daily double. Uh, just before the end of the round. So she's down to 2,000. Randy's only at 1,000. And Jennifer is at 10,600. Which, if you can get to the end of the Jeopardy round with 10,000, you're in mm-hmm. pretty good shape. Yeah. Uh, so we get the categories back in the 20th century. Adjectives. The rest of the title, please. Women. <laughs> Women. <laughs> Women! <laughs> with an exclamation point. <laughs> and uh, uh, old books. And it's not rocket science. Um, so Alex gives us a hint that these are going to be things that start with an R but are not rocket science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of that category, it, they, they come to it pretty late. Um, but when they do, they start at the $12,000 level. Uh, and the clue is, it's investigation into a bone-softening disease caused by vitamin D deficiency. Randy guesses what is osteoporosis. Jennifer guesses what is ricketology. But the correct response is ricket science. So they're looking for puns here, not like actual factual responses. Uh, And Alex tells them, you get what the category is about now. If you start at the top, you'll know immediately what the category is about. Which, ooh, that really opened a wound for me. Ooh, yeah. Sorry, being Kyle. being admonished for not starting <laughs> at the top. Alex likes people to start at the top. And so do the writers. Yeah. I, I firmly believe they're trying to punish, or yeah. not necessarily punish, but corral yeah. us back into that, that style of play. Uh-huh. Yeah. It works better for the viewers. So I agree. You know. Yeah. But the players have to play however they think they're going to play best. You know, uh, yeah. it's the it is the job of the people who work there to make it good TV, and it is the job of the people who have been given the opportunity to play to play their best game. Yeah. I didn't go on the show to be a TV star. Yeah. I went on to play Jeopardy. Yeah. Um. And I felt I felt like Alex 
had sort of had, he'd given enough of a clue about how that category was going to work. Um, sure. You didn't necessarily need to start at the top with it's the study of swatting implements used by Federer and Nadal at all. What is racket science? Ha 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 ha. Um, <laughs> that was the $400 clue. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Ricketology, which was, uh, which was Jennifer's guess, is, you know, it's, it's a reasonable approach. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. She, she had the right idea in mind. But. Yeah. So we get Daily Double number two at the $800 level in back in the 20th century, and uh, Randy finds it. And he bets the maximum, even though he... Uh, has less than that at that time uh and the clue is in 1954 russian words meaning committee for state security got shortened to these three letters for an agency and he correctly identifies what is the kgb so that adds 2000 to his score and helps him helps him get a little bit of a move yep but unfortunately for him at clue number 19 uh jennifer finds daily double uh, number three and wagers three thousand. It's in adjectives at the sixteen hundred dollar level. The clue is it's from the Latin for hammer and refers to metal that can be hammered into a new shape. Uh, and she correctly responds, "What is malleable?" Mm-hmm. So adding from malleus, adding to her already sizable lead. Yeah, getting herself way out of reach. There were a couple of clues in here thoroughly enjoyed was in the rest of the title please the two thousand dollar clue uh in the 80s quote break in two and you need to give the rest of the title which is electric boogaloo uh which has sort of become a just a joke uh in like popular culture about anything to electric boogaloo so much so that uh a lot of a lot of times i didn't know that break in was the title of the movie you know yeah. i didn't know that it was breaking two until like three days ago it some i heard electric boogaloo like i heard that somewhere and i was like you know i wonder what the actual title was so i looked it up like this week just because i, I it occurred to me and then nice. it came up today and i was like yeah All right mm. way to google yeah so that takes us to final jeopardy um jennifer has a lot game with twenty two thousand. Randy has 4,600. Katie has 6,400. Pleasing symmetry there, but Mm -hmm. probably (laughs) not not much consolation for them. Uh, The category is Europe. And the clue is a tourism website for this country noted its colorful history, quote, filled with barbarians, end quote, royalty, quote, and even a movie star, end quote which stumped me i don't know i'm curious how you did with it uh i i guessed it correctly only because of the movie star like royalty and the movie star yeah made me think of grace kelly and monaco yeah um i i had no idea what the barbarian thing had to do with monaco Mm -hmm. um yeah i uh i didn't make the grace kelly connection um I didn't, I didn't really force myself to work through it, but I figured it must be some tiny European country because if that's what you've got for your tourism websites, then, you know, you probably are not home to, like, the Eiffel Tower right. or the Leaning Tower of Pisa yeah. or, you know, whatever. You know? Uh, I figured it had to be somewhere small enough that, uh, that it was 
kind of reaching for notable facts. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I Monaco hosts the Monaco Grand Prix though mm. for like yeah. Formula One racing. Uh, they have the Monte Carlo Casino. I don't know. I feel like yeah. there are other things. Yeah, that's there, fair you, enough. Um, no, you're no good, bit, Monaco. No you got stuff. Meant to Monaco. Um, yeah, but I, I imagine they just picked that sentence because it is obscure enough to be challenging. Yeah, fair enough. So uh, Randy correctly responds, "What is Monaco?" Wagering one thousand nine hundred. Katie guesses, "What is Germany?" And Alex says. Which movie star were you thinking of, Marlene Dietrich? And Katie nods. Um, Which, when she nodded, I was like, I don't know that that's actually what she was thinking, but... When Alex know... asks you a yes or no question on TV, I think you just nod. You say yes. Yeah, yeah no, I, I would have done the exact same thing. Not being like, no, that's not who I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. and Jennifer also responded, what is Germany? Um, I wonder if they were focused more in, in on Barb. I'm yeah, about probably thinking about origin. like the Goths or yeah, something. Something like that. I don't know. Maybe. So Jennifer wagers six thousand five hundred, which means that she will be back on Monday. She wins fifteen thousand five hundred for no, yeah. for the game. Yeah. Uh, so she'll be coming back as a three day champion with ninety thousand three hundred dollars. So she's still got an average over thirty thousand, which is strong. Phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> If we look back, Emma Betcher won $97,002 in three games. So really, Jennifer is not that far behind that, realistically. That's, you know, a couple thousand a game, (laughs) which, oof. Yeah. Man, that that is impressive. Yeah. And, um, yeah, best of luck to Mondays and Tuesdays contestants, but I I would, she seems like she's Tournament of Champions material, so... Anybody yeah. can go out at any time. Um, yeah. But I'd like to see her go up against some of the best. I'd be curious to. I'd be curious to see what happens. So I hope that she makes it into uh, lock position for the tournament. Yeah. So that's our week. Yes. Time for the dive. Yeah. I had a hard time coming up with guesses of where you might be heading, Kyle, mm-hmm. um, because I. I know will say. There were like three or four different ones that I thought, oh, I could look at that. I could talk about that. I could talk about that. So you probably are are honing in on some of those. I may or may not be. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) I I know that you like to work ahead. So I focused on Monday and Tuesday. I wondered if you wanted to talk about Mitochondrial Eve. Ooh, see, that actually is one that crossed my mind. So it's a a very good guess, but not what I decided on. All right. And let's see, what else was I thinking about? Um, Oh, but now I want to. (laughs) It's a little late now, but might come back. Might come back. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Kepler? No. Ah, okay. The ones that crossed my mind, mitochondrial Eve was one. Uh, it isn't what I decided on. I thought about talking about the 95 Theses mm. um, because now I know two of them. <laughs> you know, the one on Monday about why does not the Pope build the Basilica with his own money? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I know that there's one about how indulgences are bad. And that's really mostly, like, as far as the actual 95 Theses, that's pretty much all I know about it. Like, I know it's 1512, I know it's Martin Luther, I know, you know, the things around it, 
yeah. but the actual 95 theses i don't really know them so i, th- I thought about doing that yeah i think there may be more than one sort of building a case against indulgences but you know I'm, probably i haven't sure i think i've read them at some point but i haven't read them in a while so there was that one there was also the uh opera names there the the one about don giovanni oh yeah of course uh i decided really like I mean, I could talk about the the love operas, but I feel like that's not a, a lot to really dive into all that much. Um, and I've mentioned what I wanted to mention with that. But what I went with was actually one that, uh, again, I, we just didn't talk about. <laughs> um, it's on Thursday. Oh, so. you're. you're uh, I know. I know. I'm throwing off. Yeah. Throwing it off. Uh, it's in the double jeopardy round, the B siege category. Oh, okay. Uh, the twelve hundred dollar level. The British were under siege from these South Africans at Mafeking for uh, more than 200 days before reinforcements came. Ooh, so we're going correct... back, to, yeah. back to Cape Colony. Yeah. <laughs> Don't even start. But yeah, the correct response is, uh, who are the Boers? Yeah. And I, kn- I knew that. I know what the Boer War, like I, or I knew of the Boer Wars, and I know a little bit about that, but it made me realize how much I don't know about it. I was like, I don't actually know really anything about it other than it was the British and the Boers, and it was around 1900, I think? Mm-hmm. And so I figured I'd uh, dive into that. Nice. So we're going to talk about the Boer Wars. So there were actually two different Boer Wars, um, and the one that is often recurred, often often called just the Boer War, uh, was actually the Second Boer War, uh, and a lot of historians are now calling it the South African War, uh, to kind of highlight how kind of wide ranging that war was in the whole of what is now South Africa, mm-hmm. and how pretty much everyone, well maybe not everyone, but a lot of people in the in the in that area were involved in it. Let's get into it. So, first off, who were the Boers? The word boer uh, is Dutch and Afrikaans, and it's the word for farmer. So the boers are just farmers. And in South Africa, now it refers to the descendants of the early settlers uh, of the Cape Colony by the Dutch East India Company. Uh, So from 1652 to 1795, the Dutch East India Company uh, controlled the area of what became Cape Colony. Uh, so if you're thinking of the southern tip of Africa and what is now the Republic of South Africa, uh, on the west, like the southwest corner, that's the actual like Cape of Good Hope. And that's where Cape Town is. That's where Cape Colony was founded. And it progressively expanded north and west into the like more and more inland and along the coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what uh, Cape Colony was. Uh, and that's where the Boers uh, originated from. They were Dutch settlers. There's a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of history, like, and I, I'm going to apologize right now about being a white guy talking about the history of white people in Africa instead of talking about, you know, Africans. But uh, a lot of the the origins of the Boer Wars come from the political implications of colonialism in the region. So when the Dutch arrived... Uh, South Africa and what what we now think of as South Africa was populated by a number of different uh, native tribes and nations. And throughout the hundreds of years that colonization occurred, 
various various tribes were were displaced uh went to war you know their populations were decreased for whatever reason or or moved around um so as we begin to approach the first boer war which began in 1880 the region that is now south africa had essentially four uh notable uh native tribes or nations that were more involved and had more of a more of a play uh in the wars um and they were the san which we call the bushmen mm. there was a tribe called the pedi which we'll talk about a little bit as part of like the lead up to the first boer war uh and then of course there were the zulu and the Tosa. and that actually there was a clue i think it was on wednesday's game yes was it Monday's game? Whatever it was, five clicks. It was the click category, um, the $1,000 clue. The X factor of this South African language is 18 different clicks. And uh, it was, yeah, it was Monday's game. And Alex mm-hmm. responded, what is Joja? Which is wildly incorrect in terms of actual pronunciation. But when you try to anglicize clicks, <laughs> right. you, you, like in written language, you can't. So if she's yeah. only ever seen it, that's an appropriate like we've said, if you've only said, ever seen it written in English, that's probably how you'd guess. But the X is actually a click. Yes, uh, and there's, um, a, there's a few different clicks, um, and I, I know enough about them to know that I can't correctly make the click sounds. Um, yeah, it's very uh, hard. Yeah. Um, my, my choir uh, toured in South Africa, although I did not do as much learning about the history as I should have um, back when I was in college. Um, and learned to sing uh, the South African national anthem, and so we had to oh, nice. try to learn um, some clicks. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I think we never really did them very well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for our native English mouths <laughs> to work because there's a lot of like counter motion of like your tongue moving back while you're pronouncing something forward. Mm-hmm. That's very. It's it is not how we normally speak. Anyway, yeah. so those are the those are the the, the native African uh, communities, and then of course we have the Boers and the British. Um, and by that time, uh, the British had uh, annexed Cape Colony. Uh, they did so in 1806. Basically, Britain sent a contingent of warships to Cape Town with a bunch of soldiers on them. They anchored in Cape Town and said hey you should let us have this place and the dutch were like no we we don't really want to so there was a little bit of fighting but really the dutch colony had no had no strong defenses or anything like that Mm -hmm. so essentially they were like all right i guess i guess we're part of the british empire now and so with not a not a huge amount of conflict although there was a battle the british empire took over cape colony in 1806 and the Boers were, of course, upset with that because they they speak a different language. It's it took away some of their autonomy, uh, and in the 1830s, when the United Kingdom abolished slavery, that was true for their colonies as well. And the Boers were used to employing slave labor with the native Africans, so they were also very upset about that. Uh, and and so throughout the the decades, um, there was a lot of a lot of resentment among the Boers toward uh, the British, but that also led them to to migrate away from the coast and farther inland, farther north, farther east, and they were known as Voortrekker. Mm-hmm. They're they're 
trekking they're going and they're essentially the um they're like frontiersmen um and so they just went further in further in and the british were like totally okay with it because that essentially opened up more of the inland to uh more more people you know moving in establishing cities establishing farms uh, opening up more trade inland and that kind of thing so they were totally fine with the boers going out there but eventually that did lead to uh the boers establishing a couple of what they called their free states the south african republic which britain called the transvaal and the orange free state so these are inland these are not on the coast um and they're more east and more north closer to what is now uh zimbabwe and uh mozambique uh more up toward that that region so as we approach the 1880s uh great britain wants to desire or wants to control all the trade uh not only from africa but also around africa around the cape of good hope to india which is also their you know the indian raj is another colony so they want to control that whole trading uh corridor also in the 1860s 1868 a massive deposit of diamonds was found near uh, the kimberley settlement uh, which was in the transvaal region and also near the border with cape colony and you know at the same time there was the race against the portuguese and the germans and the french and the belgians uh, to colonize more and more of africa the scramble for africa which we're still feeling the effects of today mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah and so in 1877, Great Britain decided that they wanted to annex the Transvaal, or this South African Republic. Yeah, in 1877, Sir Theophilus Shepstone, which is a cool name, it is. Uh, the British Secretary for Native Affairs in Natal, which was another British colony uh, on the eastern coast of what is now South Africa, was granted a special warrant from the British government to annex the Transvaal. Uh, the Boers were obviously upset about that and objected, um, but they couldn't really do much about it. The Boer Free States did not have uh, an organized military, and their government was really not particularly strong. The Boers were very independent people, um, and so they, they did not have a they did not have a really like strong national identity or a very strong you know like uh, institution for their um, for their states. But at the time, there was also the issue with the Zulu threat. So there was Zululand, which also bordered the Transvaal and Natal, and King Quechuao of the Zulus had been building the nation back up into more of a war machine, more of a uh, a stronger military presence in the area, um, and so. The Boers were worried that the Zulu were a threat, and they didn't want to start fighting the British with the threat of the Zulu also there because they figured, well, if we start fighting each other, then the Zulu will come in and take advantage of that, and we don't want that either. Mm-hmm. So they let the they they like acquiesced to the British annexation and kind of did some political maneuvering to sort of convince the British Directorate to go to war with the Zulu. So before we have the Boer War, uh, a few years you know, before that, the British in Natal and Cape Colony decide to invade Zululand. Uh, and the Zulu War is actually pretty interesting, but I don't want to take the time to get into it. Uh, but the way that the Zulu fought um, was, it, like, it, it's, it's very interesting. Ultimately, they lost. You know, the British Empire had superior numbers to call on, and also 
uh, superior technology. Mm. But basically, the British uh, thought that the Zulu War would go in the same kind of pattern that it had in other colonial wars that they'd fought in Africa. So, like, basically, you send out a, a, a regiment and they run into some, you know, natives who have spears and shields and the the professional British soldiers, you know, disperse them quickly with their superior firepower and all of that. But the Boers kind of knew because they'd been fighting the natives for a while. They knew that the, the Zulus were much more, uh, much more wily than that. And uh, so the Zulu war actually took a lot longer and was a lot more costly to the British than... Uh, they were anticipating. But ultimately, by 1879, uh, they had conquered the Zulu capital at Ulundi, and that was essentially the end of uh, the Zulu nation as an independent uh, thing. Uh, and then the the Boers of the Transvaal uh, felt like, okay, cool, Zulus are dealt with, now we can start talking to the British about the problems we have, like, you know, we don't like that you have annexed us. We don't like that you're forcing your way of life on us. We, and you recognized our independence, you know, 40 years ago, in a couple of treaties that were that were signed between the Boer Free States and and the British government. And now you're just clearly in breach of those treaties. So we need to like figure this out. So Sir George Pomeroy Coley, a major general of the British Army. He comes in, he's, uh, he takes over as governor of Natal Colony and Transvaal, and in 1880, he kind of takes control of everything. The Boers were not being listened to, and so in December of 1880, they revolt, and the, uh, the First Boer War breaks out uh, at, I'm going to be so bad at Afrikaans pronunciations, but I'll try, uh, the first battle at Bronkhorstspruit, um, where they ambushed... Uh, a British column of soldiers and just really took them to town. The First Boer War was was a pretty thorough uh, victory for the Boers. Uh, and the reason for that is because they employed a lot of the same tactics that actually the American the, the American soldiers used in the American Revolution, which was like guerrilla tactics. Uh, anytime in the American Revolution, you know, we, that the colonials tried to just square up and face off with British soldiers in the traditional sense, they we lost. Mm-hmm. But uh, using guerrilla tactics, using cover, uh, taking snipe shots, uh, you know, not engaging in actual pitched battles worked out well for the Americans, and it worked out well for the Boers. They wore their traditional farming clothes, their earth tone khakis and stuff, so they could blend in with the countryside, and they could also just blend in with people. They, all of them were, you know, were avid riders they were frontiersmen they were farmers they they knew how to ride horses well they knew the terrain and they always had hunting rifles and uh the boars traditionally had um like shooting contests just as you know ways of passing time so most of the boars were really good shots um uh, aside from the larger battles they were able to constantly pick at the at the british when they were moving when they thought that they were safe constantly picking off British soldiers, like, all the time. Um, so there were three main engagements. Battle of Lang's Neck in January of 1881, Ngogo River in February of 1881, and Majuba Hill in late February 1881. So this was not a terribly long war. 
but basically this this uprising caught the british by surprise and there were like six forts that the british had established uh, throughout the area and the all of them became besieged pretty quickly and um field marshal coley kept trying to relieve those forts but he kept approaching it in the old-fashioned way and he kept getting his butt kicked uh so a lot of these numbers uh we see like uh the battle of liang's neck 150 of the uh, mounted troops were killed, and I believe it's something like two boars were Ooh, killed. Yeah. The Battle of uh, Ingogo River, it was again General Coley, uh, and he was like trying to move reinforcements around, but they just got, uh, they, they exposed themselves to attack and uh, were thoroughly routed by the boars, and then the last like major battle was Majuba Hill. So Coley led a, a night march of 400 soldiers from the 92nd Highlanders, which the the Highlanders were like an elite military unit. They were they were the ones to fear, right? So in the night they reached the top of Majuba Hill, and at first light, a group of the Highlanders like stand up on top of the hill and shake their fists and yell at the Boers. I don't know why. Huh. Like, it, I, and so the the Boers were like, huh? Well, let's go get him. <laughs> um, so the British thought they had a really strong position because they're at the top of the top of a hill. But the Boers were like, "Cool, they just took the hill because they knew how to use cover and knew how to approach like using the land properly." And the British lost uh, ninety-two soldiers were killed, one hundred and thirty-one were injured, and fifty were taken prisoner. And one Boer died and six wounded. Oof. Like, yeah. yeah. And so so all of these engagements through the First Boer War, the, the British were just getting, like, thoroughly uh, defeated. And so what comes from that, the uh, the British government is like, cool, we're fine. You you guys win. They didn't want to get into a, a, a more costly and uh, protracted war in Africa when they were worried about, you know, India and Eastern Europe and all these other things that the empire had to deal with. So they uh, signed a treaty with the uh, free states, which essentially gave them uh, autonomy with internal affairs, but with the British government as uh, suzerains, which is a word that I had encountered a few times and I didn't write, quite know. A suzerain is a region or polity that controls the foreign policy and relations of a tributary state. Mm-hmm. So basically, the, the free states could run themselves however they wanted, but... Uh, the British government and the the local colonial government would be in charge of their international affairs, which the Boers were fine with because they had no desire to be like players on the international stage. They just wanted to be able to live their lives the way they wanted to. Mm -hmm. So, which I will say like as much as that's a great thing, part of that was being able to like enslave and abuse the native populations. So not, not, not always good. So yeah, that's the first Boer war. And so we get a, we get some time of peace However, in 1886, the world's largest deposit of gold-bearing ore is discovered in the Vidvadarstrand, which is Whitewater Ridge, uh, in the Transvaal. And that brings in a whole bunch of people from outside to, you know, strike it rich. So that creates a lot of tension between the, the, the Transvaal, the free states, and the British colonies, because a lot of Britain, British people are coming across the border to settle there and mine for gold. And actually, um, the city of Johannesburg 
was founded as a mining sort of shanty town <laughs> at first. Um, but now we know it's one of the biggest cities in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And so that, along with uh, other other tensions and things like that, leads to the Second Boer War, which occurred from 1899 to 1902. So precipitating this, there was a, there was a, an event called the Jameson Raid. Cape Colony's Prime Minister Cecil Rhodes and Johannesburg gold magnate Alfred Beit uh, had a plan to essentially take over the Transvaal. And so they they um, got Dr. Leander Starr Jameson to lead a, a column of 600 armed men into the Transvaal and essentially try to make it, like, start an uprising uh, among the British expatriates, who the uh, Boers called the Wheatlanders. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of them in the area, and so the plan was like we're going to come in with some armed people, and we're going to get all of the all of the British people in in the land already to rise up and join us and take over this. Uh, and it just did not work at all. There was a, a brief fight between the Transvaal authorities, um, between the Boers and the Column. Uh, again, the British lost sixty five, and the Boers lost one. <laughs> like. <laughs> It, I don't understand <laughs> how how it can be so lopsided. But uh, uh, then they were captured and arrested, and so that heightened tensions, of course, between Cape Colony and the and the Free States. Um, and a few days later, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany uh, sent a telegram to the president of, of Transvaal, President Kruger, uh, congratulating him on their success in putting down this uh, potential rebellion. Uh, the British found out, and it not only increased like tension between the British and the Boers, but it also created a lot of anti-German sentiment in England. And of course, this is you know 15, fourteen years out from World War One, so right. already having issues there. So these these things eventually lead lead to the Second Boer War, or what is often called the actual Boer War. And so the the British kind of like essentially come up with a bunch of a bunch of excuses to try to go to war and that the term for those are casus belli just means like an excuse to go to war yeah uh so they come up with a bunch of things about like oh we have a lot of british people living in the area and we have to protect their interest and also oh but the boars are really bad to the natives and we need to go in and protect them too which is a noble thing to say i have a hard time believing that's actually what they were concerned with and of course they just wanted the gold that's really it they wanted the riches of the land. So in 1899, they, they had attempted negotiations, but neither neither side had really come in good faith. In 1899, uh, the negotiations fail, and the British Empire goes to war with the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. Mm-hmm. So there are three phases of the Second Boer War. It was much longer and much more protra- protracted. The first phase is again shown uh, shows boer dominance they uh all of the all of the engagements were resulted in in the boers uh besieging certain cities like um the question in jeopardy uh Matha king and others like lady smith and kimberly uh and also just putting you know uh getting in the in the british way and uh ambushing convoys and cutting supply lines and and just having really lopsided victories uh in 1900 the british government decided that it was actually worth it there was enough gold in them our hills to go after them so the british government sent a vast 
force of 180,000 men mm. to South Africa to 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 fight this war. And so with this 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 massive army that the Boers could not match, uh, the second phase of the war uh, resulted in eventually af- after after a number of, of tough battles, British being able to break through and capture the free state capitals um, in both the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. Mm-hmm. So by the end of the second phase, essentially the war was actually over. A number, uh, a large number of uh, the of Boers, Boer fighters had been captured and were taken as prisoners of war. Uh, and a little thing that I thought was pretty interesting here, they actually, uh, they, they, they figured out that they couldn't keep all of those POWs in South Africa for fear of like, you know, being released by sympathetic locals or, you know, they just didn't have space or whatever. So they sent about 5,000 POWs to St. Helena and another 5,000 to what is now Sri Lanka uh, and a bunch of others to Bermuda and India as well. Potentially there are just a ton of Boer descendants in those in those places now yeah. because they were prisoners of war. So in March 1900, uh, Lord Roberts, who had taken over command, declared amnesty for uh, basically anyone who who promised to take the oath of neutrality and return quietly to their homes. Uh, a lot of a lot of people did, but there were also a number of people who were called bitter enders who refused to take the oath and decided to keep fighting. So. Britain controls both republics in term in terms of like government and infrastructure and things like that, right? They they have they are occupying, uh, but the Boers continue fighting uh, for the next couple of years until May 1902. And at first, a lot uh, this is pretty successful. They're able to like you know engage in little skirmishes and and sneak attacks and things like that. But the British responded rather severely, and so they decided that. Uh, what they needed to do was break the morale of the fighters and make it so that they had more concern for uh, themselves and their families than would make it worth it to keep fighting. So they established a blockhouse system, which was just built a bunch of uh, fortifications along main roads and at key points to be able to constantly garrison troops in any region. They took on a scorched earth policy, which was basically... They, if they decided that they thought there were guerrilla fighters um, in a particular farm, they would go and burn the farm. Or, you know, if, if there were people or like families of people that they knew were fighters or, you know, leaders of the, of the resistance, they'd go and arrest the family and take all their stuff. And uh, they also established concentration camps where they took just tons of boers as well as uh natives uh and kept them in these concentration camps as ways of utter you know demoralizing and squashing the resistance and it worked it was pretty brutal and so these concentration camps this this is kind of when that term started being used Mm. they were pretty poorly administered and taken care of uh they were overcrowded uh but as concentration camps go, the pe- the people running them didn't really seem to care. Yeah, and so, like as a result of this, eventually there were forty five tented camps built for Boers and sixty four camps built for Black Africans. 
Of the 28,000 Boer men captured as prisoners of war, 25,630 were sent overseas and either freed or enslaved within uh, civil societies. So the vast majority of Boers remaining in the local camps were women and children. Over 26,000 women and children died in the concentration camps during those two years. Wow. And that was just the Boers, not to mention yeah, uh, the, the native Yeah, it sounds like Afro. there were more, more camps for, for, uh, for black Africans. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty bad. Effective, yeah. but pretty bad. Um, so that was the second Boer War, and that essentially, that was the end of the Boer Free States, and... Uh, quickly led to the Union of South Africa, which eventually became what we know as the Republic of South Africa. So that was when, that was the point at which uh, the British Empire consolidated all of the lands of what is now South Africa and led to, you know, led to today. Yeah. Wow. That's been quite a journey. I, I, I'm embarrassed that having traveled a bit in the area that I, uh, that I knew so little about that. Um, thank you wow oh there's and there's a ton there's so much more (laughs) i was like going down rabbit holes and rabbit holes all right so that brings us to the quiz and the quiz is just about africa because i tried to get cheeky and whatever and nail it like narrow down things but i was like whatever i'll just do it about africa so all of these questions Uh, have to do with have to do with africa and, and really quite specifically uh south africa and the south african area so question number one June 16th is the annual celebration of the day of what in the African Union? It was established originally to honor the student protesters of the Soweto uprising in 1976. About 10,000 marched that day in Soweto, South Africa to demand quality education in their own language. Hmm. The day of the what? Um, Trying to think what this could be. It seems like it's connected with the movement to end apartheid. I'm not quite sure what the proper, like what what the noun would be. The day was there. A, is there a hint in there that I missed? Kind of. It was established originally to honor the student protesters of the Soweto uprising in 1976. I, I can't necessarily get more hinty than that without just telling you what it is. All right. I don't think end of apartheid is specific enough. I'm going to guess township, but I don't mm. think that's correct. Interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it is the day of the African child. Ah, uh, okay. And so originally it was established to honor those children. Yeah. Uh, about 10,000 marched that day, and uh, I think around 100 ended up being killed in the mm-hmm. subsequent events yeah. of, that, of that protest. Yeah, so it, its main focus is on providing education for African African children, but also can be generalized to like just honoring the child. Yeah. Um, and in certain parts of Africa, that also means like taking care of former child soldiers and things like that. So yeah. it's a pretty important, pretty important day in the African Union. Yeah. Okay. Question number two: We mentioned that the British used concentration camps to subjugate the Boers in, in the South African War. While these camps were intended to demoralize the Boer population, genocide was not necessarily the intent. However, only a few years later, German colonial military employed similar but more severe tactics with the Herero and Nama people. At the time, the colony was called German Southwest Africa. What do we call it today? 
As an aside, the German government has since recognized and taken responsibility for the genocide of the Herero and Nama, but did not go so far as to consider reparations. Ooh. All right, I'm trying to get a map of Africa in my head, and it's going poorly. Um, let's see. What is around there? South, Southwest Africa, right? Mm-hmm. German All Southwest right. Africa. German Southwest Africa. Like Namibia is around there, Angola is around there, oh. um, Zimbabwe is somewhere around there. Z- is Zambia around there? I will go with Zambia, but I don't think that's right. Ah, I don't know things about so, Africa. So are you gonna go with Zambia? Um, I'll go with Zimbabwe. I'm okay. more I'm more confident that I'm like roughly in the right geographic area. Yeah, you'll have to go two countries west. It is Namibia. Ooh. Okay. Oh, I should have gone with Namibia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the German genocide of the Herero and Nama actually was sort of a uh, prototype for the Holocaust. They employed, like, the, at least the concentration camps that they used were were looked back at by the Nazis as, as blueprints for uh, what they ended up doing in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. It was pretty, pretty dark. Yeah. <laughs> reading up on that okay so those are my i think those are probably the two the two hardest all right i started uh, out with that all right good to know <laughs> question three. and I, I looking at a i pulled up a map of africa after i locked in my answer and was pleased that i at least you know was able to name a good portion of the the countries in sure you know just north of yeah. south africa although some of them were too right. far east to really be southwestern but right it could be worse although it could be a lot better I've, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I get it. I, I think Zimbabwe, uh, Zimbabwe used to be called Rhodesia. Yeah. Oh, you're and, right. Yep. And Botswana used to be called something like Bechuana Land or something like that. Mm. Anyway, they had weird names. Yeah. Anyway, question three. Lord Robert Baden-Powell was a commander of British forces at Mafeking, the railway junction besieged for nearly a year by the Boers. They were relieved near the end of formal combat in the Second Boer War by Field Marshal Roberts. Baden-Powell is better known in the rest of the world for founding a particular organization. What was it? Ooh, I know this one. Uh, I know it because I was a Girl Scout, and so we learned the history and lore of scouting, uh, and now I am a mom to a Cub Scout, uh, so he is the founder of the Boy Scouts. Yes, and he also founded its counterpart with his sister Agnes as well. Mm -hmm. Girl Scouts. So yes. yeah, nice. Ding 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 ding. Ten points. Does that count as answering a question about Africa? Not really. But I, I mean, will, I will take the points how I can get them. He he was the commander of British forces yes. at Mafeking. Yes, he was in the Second Boer War. In fact, that is the question from Jeopardy. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, the siege of 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 Mafeking. Anyway, cool. So you got ten points. Uh, question four. As we have learned. The names of different areas in the southwest or in the South Africa region have changed many times in the last two centuries. However, the names have remained fairly consistent for the last two decades. What is the notable exception that changed its name in 2018 by order of King Muswati III? Ooh, uh, I know this one. Um, it used to be called Swaziland, and it's cha- it changed its name to Iswatini. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, Iswatini. Uh, they changed their name, uh, part of uh, recognition of their f- of 50 years of independence, and also to more accurately uh, represent 
the the name that they have for themselves in their native language. Mm-hmm. Nice. Also, apparently, they didn't want to be confused with Switzerland. Oh. I, re- I read that somewhere. I was like, I don't think I would confuse Switzerland and Swaziland, I, but maybe. Yep. Who knows? I, uh, I <laughs> as far as confusion in Swaziland goes, I spent a good portion of my life uh, pointing at the map at Lesotho and constantly <laughs> saying, there is Swaziland. Swaziland. Um, so yeah. I only got that straightened out when I was studying for Jeopardy, I think. Yeah. Mm, question five. Apartheid, South Africa's legal institution of discrimination along racial lines, was formally dismantled in 1994. This allowed all citizens of South Africa to vote for president, resulting in the election of Nelson Mandela. Who did he replace? The same man that he shares a Nobel Peace Prize with for their joint efforts in the removal of apartheid. Oh, goodness. Um, There's a name coming up. I'm not totally confident in it, but I think it's something like de Klerk. It is is F.W. Yes. de Klerk. You are absolutely correct. All right. Yeah, so he was uh, uh, he was state president of South Africa in the years leading up, I think, eight, nine, eight, 1989 to 1994. And he, in those years, he worked with Nelson Mandela and, and others to initiate the uh, removal of apartheid and essentially the um, enfranchisement of all, all South Africans which did result in him, you know, not being elected again. And so for that work, uh, he received the joint Nobel Prize with mm-hmm. Nelson Mandela. He is kind of controversial. He was a supporter of apartheid for a long time. Right. Uh, who's to say? But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. All right. So that brings us to the final. How do you, how confident do you feel? I believe you have 30 points. All right. Um I think you have some history of trying to get above 50, so... I do, but I don't really have a reason for that other than just wanting to. Well, I mean, I don't have a reason for not doing that also, um, so I'll wager 21. Okay. This is a really short question. It's just one sentence. Okay. And I'm I'm hoping... I'm pretty sure, pretty sure you'll get it. All right. But I, I just wanted to ask it. Uh-oh. Here right. it comes. I'm bracing myself. Who blessed the rains down in Africa? Oh. It's Toto, right? It is Toto. It is Toto. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> that's a... Thank you. That's, that's one of those questions where, like, I'm aware that it's far out of my wheelhouse, and yet I think I know it. But, like, I... Anyway, I, I, I'm pleased that the thing that came to me was was correct because uh, yeah yeah you got it yay congratulations so you're you're ending with 51 points i'll take those points and i will put them with my other points to do whatever it is we do with these points oh we should probably figure that out yeah we should think about something for that hmm well we can do that at another time well congratulations emily you did well i'm i'm glad that the questions I thought were the hardest were the hardest, and the other ones were not too hard. <laughs> I, you know, I'm kicking myself for overthinking them, because I think that Namibia is the first thing I said. It was, of, yeah. Yeah. Then I moved along from it, because it was like, I can't remember, there was something that happened with, like, you know, countries, like, joining and splitting and changing names. It's probably not Namibia. That's, you know, for whatever reason. Hmm. I, uh, I've griped on the podcast before about people not knowing things about the continent of Africa. 
And right. uh, I feel like I've learned new things, and I bet our listeners have as well. Hopefully so. Yeah. And again, I'm, I am recognizing that I am a white guy talking about white people in Africa, so I apologize for that. If there were a question that was more relevant to... Like, if there was a question about Shaka, oh, man. Oh, I should have included a question about Shaka. I did. I went down a rabbit hole on Shaka Zulu. Ooh. Like, oh, my gosh. Super interesting. Mm. Maybe maybe during the, you know, summer hiatus, we can just do, like, dives on things we want to talk about yeah, or something. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah, I'll have yeah. to remember that because, oof. Oh, man. Thank you guys for listening. Thank, thank you so much for spending your time with us. We really appreciate it. Um, just you know, seeing, seeing the downloads and, and knowing that people are listening, it, it, it makes us feel good. So thank you for it doing does. that. Thank you yeah. for taking the time. Uh, be sure to subscribe and review on whatever it is that you are using to get this podcast. It helps us out. Uh, tell your friends who like Jeopardy about us. Uh, word of mouth is the, the best way to, for us to get new listeners. Um, you can find us on social media as well. Uh, we're on Facebook at Potent Potables. And we are on Twitter at PotentPotables1. And we'll be back with you next week to talk about another week of Jeopardy. So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.